It's good to be back with you. It's been a while. We were gone for a couple weeks, enjoyed our little R&R in Colorado, and uh, had a good time. You guys been to Colorado? Yeah? It's a little cold in January, a little dry, but it was beautiful. Had a great time, so. But we missed you all. It's good to be back, uh, ready to jump back into our study of First Peter. It's been, man, maybe six weeks, I think, or so since we've been in First Peter, we took a little break around Christmas and then, you know, whatnot, so I'm excited to be back in. For those that haven't been with us throughout this series, the uh, kind of working title that I have for this series is called Alien Life Form, How to Live Your Life as an Alien, because Peter addresses Christians living in first century uh, as aliens or strangers or sojourners, as some translations say. Because, folks, that's exactly what we are as believers in Jesus. We are in this world, but we're not of this world. And we are certainly aliens or strangers here. I had a couple inflatable aliens, but uh, they felt they were a little deflated this morning, so I didn't, I didn't make them come out. That's a literal joke. Um, I have to air them up and bring them out next week, but... Oh, I'm excited to be back. So, you know, in seventh grade, I told my mother that I wanted to play football. So uh, I think I was probably like 110 pounds or something. I don't know. But I had this dream of being a football player, you know, because every seventh grader wants to gain the popularity that comes from being a football star, right? My mom knew I probably wasn't up to it, but uh, when she saw the tear in my eye, asking to sign up. Like a lot of moms, she caved, and she signed me up for football. So I was excited, you know, I had all these visions of becoming this uh, football star. I wanted to be a wide receiver, you know, and all the glory that comes from being a football star and for a seventh grader. Uh, and then there were tryouts. So I show up to tryouts for the football team and uh, kind of listen a lot as a lot of other guys were out there trying to get on the team, and then we did some drills and some practices. And then at the end of the practice, the coach said, we're going to do some wind sprints. We call them suicide sprints. So wind sprints are where you stand at one end zone and you sprint to the next end zone. And then he blows the whistle and you do it again coming back. And he blows the whistle <laughs> and you do it again going that way. Until he decides that you've had enough. Well, after who knows how many wind sprints that I did as I was walking away from the tryouts, uh, throwing up, I said, Mom, I'm not so sure I want to be on the football team anymore. <laughs> that was enough. As it turns out, my, my dream of being a football star was really just a, a passing fantasy more than a reality uh, especially once the realization of the physical cost it would involve in becoming a football star. I have a question I want to ask for all of you this morning that are believers in Jesus Christ. Do you desire to be a passionate, fervent follower of Jesus Christ? Or is it maybe just a, a passing fantasy for you? Maybe there are even some who never really seriously considered being a fervent follower of Jesus. 
But do you have a real and lasting desire to have an influence for Jesus Christ among your family, your friends, your coworkers, your community, and your world? Or is that something that maybe you just gave an occasional thought to from time to time, but never really had any serious plan to see it happen in your life? You know, I think that's the question that the first century believers living in Asia Minor, it's modern-day Turkey, were struggling with at the time that Peter wrote to them. Do they, do they really want their lives to count for Jesus Christ? That may seem like an easy question until the coach asks you to run wind sprints, right? Because when these people first believed in Jesus, I, I kind of imagine their life was probably pretty good. They adapted to their culture, they had their families, they had their friends, their jobs, their community. You know, life as a Christian at that time may not have been all that difficult, at least initially. But their relatively predictive, uh, predictable and quiet world would soon be disrupted when they learned that following Jesus was no walk in the park. Not everyone was a big fan of Jesus, turns out. In fact, there are a lot of people that have an aversion to Jesus Christ and to those that follow him. Because a believer who decides to fervently follow Jesus with their life finds themselves at odds with the world. You realize quickly there is a conflict here between me and what the world is living for. The two are opposed to each other. We understand that from the Bible. But why is that? Why is the world so opposed to Jesus and those that follow him? Well, because God's purpose for your life is in opposition to the world's purpose for your life. And when I say the world, we really are referring to, to Satan, the enemy of our soul and of God. Satan is opposed to God and God's people and anything that God wants to do in this world. But as Peter's already said in the previous chapters, and what everyone who calls himself a Christian really needs to understand this morning, is that how we answer that question is a matter of life and death. The eternal significance of our lives as Christians is directly related to whether we choose to fervently follow Jesus or to settle for what we call closet Christianity or casual Christianity or even cultural Christianity. You know, I think closet Christianity, you've heard that expression, right? Closet, I'm a closet Christian. Yeah, I'm a believer in Jesus but my faith doesn't really influence any other area or part of my life. I don't want anyone really to know that I'm Christian. It's definitely not going to be reflected in my life in any real way. Cultural Christianity, you know, I've heard that expression as well, and maybe you have, but a lot of defini def uh, definitions for cultural Christianity. But here's one that, that I think reflects kind of my understanding of, of modern-day cultural Christianity. Listen to this. It says, that cultural Christianity is the tendency to be shallow in our understanding of God, wanting Him to be more of a gentle grandfather type who spoils us 
and lets us have our own way. It is a sensing a need for God, but on our own terms. It's wanting the God that we've underlined in our Bibles without wanting the rest of Him too. Does that make sense? Cultural Christianity. So this morning and the time we have, I just want to share briefly a couple ways that you and I can experience the dream of becoming a fervent follower of Jesus. And when we do, we will see our lives change. We'll see others' lives influenced by the change God's doing in us. And our world will be impacted, our families, our churches, by the way that we fervently follow Jesus Christ. Let's read the passage to begin. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 1. I'm going to read uh, through verse 6. I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has past is sufficient. It suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though Judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. <clears throat> Father, I just want to come before you this morning because we are in great need here this morning. We are in need of divine intervention, we are in need of your Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds to this truth that you have spoken here this morning, to understand, to have insight into what your plan is for our life. We need help with that, Lord. <clears throat> so show us this morning, we pray. Help us to understand. Help us to reflect on these truths in our life so that we might become fervent followers of yours, experiencing your best, your purpose for our life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, a uh, little quick poll. How many of you think that I'm going to get through all four points this morning? Wow, you guys are trained well. Here's, here's one of two ways I want to talk about this morning on how to be a fervent follower of Jesus. Number one, uh, we need to prepare for purpose. Prepare for purpose. Peter said, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Your translation may say, may say purpose. The same uh, attitude, maybe your translation says. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So when you read that verse as a good Bible student, you see that word therefore, you have to ask yourself, what's therefore, therefore? Before you can understand the rest of the passage. Well, Peter had just finished telling these believers in the previous chapters who were suffering for their faith, by the way, that suffering is just a part of living in this world, isn't it? Everyone suffers. 
whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. It's an unavoidable fact of living in a sin-cursed world that's full of sinful people. We will suffer. But anyone who desires to fervently follow Jesus with their lives will endure suffering as well. And so Peter's saying that since suffering and hardship are part of living in a sinful world, why suffer from doing wrong when, you know, you're going to suffer either way? Why not suffer for things that are right, things that matter, things that have eternal significance to them, things that, that we are actually rewarded for, the Bible tells us. Because when the Christian suffers for their faith, you know it's precious to God. I don't think God likes it when we suffer, but he definitely empathizes and it's precious to him because his son, Jesus, also suffered, did he not? In the flesh. Jesus suffered simply by for living out the Father's will for his life. And so Peter's saying that when you suffer for following Jesus, don't forget Jesus also suffered in his body, in his humanity, in his earthly life, just like you and I will as followers of his. When, excuse me. when Peter says that Jesus suffered in the flesh and that we will also suffer in the flesh, he's not just speaking of a physical suffering in our bodies, though that certainly is true. It was true of Jesus. He suffered physically, so the first century Christians a lot of times suffered physically through persecution. That's still a reality for many followers of Jesus today, right? Uh, Christians, because of their faith, suffer physically persecution across the world. But body here, or flesh, means all parts of the body that constitute a totality known as flesh. We all still have flesh. We all still are in the body in that sense. And so, because we still have flesh, because we still have our, our bodies, our humanness, it infects our entire being. It affects us physically it affects us mentally, and it affects us emotionally. So since that's true of every believer, that is if you're human, then it's absolutely critical for us to understand that we have to arm ourselves with the same attitude that Jesus had. To arm yourself really just means to prepare yourself for this reality as a follower of Jesus. Because if your desire in life is to please God, we just sang about pleasing God with our life. If you really want to please God with your life, you want to have a real and lasting influence on your family, on your church, on your community, and your world, we have to prepare ourselves for this purpose. And the way that we prepare ourselves for this purpose is to prepare our minds. That's what Peter's saying. Some translations use the word mind, have this mind of Jesus. A better translation might be insight, and not necessarily that word attitude or purpose. He's saying have the same insight that Jesus had when he suffered in his earthly body. And as the ESV says, arm yourselves with this same way of thinking, 
Why? Why, why do you need to prepare your mind for this and, and have the same mindset? Well, because the right insight is a powerful weapon. What insight? The same as Christ had. That is, the flesh is passing away and the lust thereof, but the significance of our lives can last forever. And so if we ever aspire to fervently follow Jesus, we have to prepare our minds for what that's going to require. We have to understand that living for Jesus will always come with hardships. And Peter will explain that in the next verse. But it affects the totality of us, doesn't it? Our person, our body, our mind, the way we, the way we think, <clears throat> our feelings, our emotions. All of it, we suffer. You know, I was thinking about that and <clears throat> see a lot of Christians that, that are suffering in the body today for various reasons. But I kind of tend to think, and I just, as I look at my own life, I think a lot of the suffering comes from us having unrealistic and unmet expectations as we view the world around us. When we have the mindset that living as a follower of Jesus in a hostile world is going to be easy, or that somehow we're going to be exempt from all the hardships associated with being a believer in the world like we live in today, then we don't have the right insight, do we? We have the wrong perspective, and we need God's perspective on life in this world. I think one of the greatest causes of frustration and anxiety and discouragement, even depression, is when things that we expect to go a certain way in life just don't go that way, or our way, right, if we're honest. Think about that. What causes anxiety? What causes anger? What causes frustration? It's when we think that something's supposed to be a certain way, and then it, it really isn't that way. When people don't behave the way that we expect them to behave, when we get disappointed, we get discouraged when we see that, right? That's because in our flesh, in our humanness, in our limited perspective on life, we fail to understand that things just don't always go our way in life. Things don't go God's way in life. You ever notice that? In fact, in the world, we will have trouble, as Jesus said. Think about this. If Jesus, the only perfect man to ever walk this earth, <clears throat> who did nothing but good, did, did he not? He, he loved people. He healed people. He fed people. He had a message of hope and healing and all of this. But he experienced pain and suffering in this life. Why would we think that as his followers we would experience anything different? And if Jesus experienced rejection and hatred and criticism and abuse as a perfect man, why would we expect anything differently? And I can't help but think of the time that Jesus spent in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember that occasion? Here he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, just weighed down, like literally weighed down by the weight of his suffering. Picture Jesus in that garden. The Bible tells us that he was so weighed down by the suffering of bearing the sin of the world, of, of, of 
everything that he was enduring and about to endure in the crucifixion. Sweat drops of blood. It was so heavy. And do you remember what Jesus cried out to his father? If there's any other way, do you remember that? Father, if there's any other way, if there's any way to do this by avoiding the suffering and the hardship and the pain and all that he would endure, he says, let's go that way. But what did he end up saying ultimately? Not my will, but yours be done. Are, are you prepared to fervently follow Jesus? Have you prepared your mind for action? Are you, are you arming yourselves with the same way of thinking as Jesus did by aligning your purpose in life with God's purpose? And then Peter throws in this statement, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That's interesting. Maybe your translations read that more in the present tense. Whoever suffers has ceased from sin. And it's really hard to understand. I like the ESV version because I think it's more literal. The grammar is so important here. He's saying uh, it's in the perfect tense. It means one who has suffered and it refers to something in the past. So I think it's best to understand that as a reference to, to the refining effects that suffering has in the process of our spiritual growth. We learn the most through suffering, do we not? Isn't it through the hardships and the hard times that we finally say, whoa, man, I gotta, I gotta do something different here. I need the Lord or whatever the case may be. And so what I think Peter's saying is, is when a person suffers long enough because they've, they've chosen to indulge in the flesh and to go their way in life, if they suffer enough because of the effects of that life, they then have a changed attitude or a changed mindset towards that sin that resulted in the suffering. That's how it should be. And here is the basic point, I believe. Living for our flesh, living for our earthly passions and desires, which are contrary to God's desires, always leads to sin, and sin always leads to suffering. So if you and I suffer long enough in our body because we keep making the wrong decisions and keep going the wrong way, we fulfill our passions and desires, we should be done with sin. We should cease from sin, you would think. At some point in our life, when you, when you see the pain and the destruction and the devastation that selfish, self-centered living causes, we should wise up. Stop it. Stop, stop doing that, right? I'm reminded of the prodigal son. Isn't that what the scriptures tell us? He did that. Ran off, fulfilled his passions, his desires, lived in the flesh, and then it says, but then he came to his senses, and he realized even the servants in his father's house have it better than he does right now. That's what I think Peter's getting at. And then he goes on in verses 2 and 3 to, talk, to tell us that not only uh, do we need to 
prepare for that purpose, God's purpose in our life. We need to forget the flesh. Look at verses 2 and 3. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies, drinking parties and lawless idolatry. Christians, when, when the Holy Spirit gives us insight from God as you uh, navigate life, you learn that sin doesn't satisfy. And so when they adopt the mindset of Jesus and understand that God's way is the best way that you could ever live life, they decide, forget the flesh, man. Forget the flesh and those earthly desires those passions that I keep fulfilling, and I'm going to start living for what God desires. I think we need to understand something really important here. God has a will for your life, but so do you. And oftentimes, God's will for our life is in conflict with what we want, isn't it? The Gentiles or the pagans, as, as some translations read, is just another way to describe people who don't know Jesus. Peter said the, these unbelievers, they live for their passions and desires of their flesh. When they had a desire or a passion, they just went after it without any thought as to whether, I wonder if this is good for me or if this is God's will for me. They don't think about those things. And he gave us some examples of the way that unbelievers lived their lives in the first century. You've heard... Uh, New Living Translation translates it this way. You have had enough in the past of evil things that godless people enjoy. Their immorality and lust. Their feasting and drunkenness and wild parties and their terrible worship of idols. And you may sit in here this morning and say, you know, I'm not doing any of those things. Well, good. <laughs> but Peter says, you have had enough of living like this in the past. He's referring to these believers. He's talking about believers. This is not an exhaustive list of the only ways that Gentiles or unbelievers live. It's really just some examples of the way unbelievers live. They live for the passions of their flesh. They live for themselves. Those are the types of passions that the first century People live for. Though we're in 21st century America today, it doesn't seem that we've come all that far along, does it? The Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthian church, said this in 1 Corinthians 6, Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin, or who worship idols, or commit adultery, or are male prostitutes, or practice homosexuality, or are thieves, or greedy people, or drunkards, or are abusive, or cheat people. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says this, some of you were once like that. Such were some of you. Here's the reality. <clears throat> we all still struggle with the flesh. No one is exempt from the lure of our human sinful desires. You may not be tempted to commit adultery 
But you may be tempted to cheat someone. Maybe the government on your taxes. Whatever. You may not be tempted uh, with getting drunk. But you may be tempted to be abusive to people. Physically, verbally, emotionally. James reminds us in James 3 and verse 2, he says, For we all stumble in many ways. What? Not James. He's the half-brother of Jesus. Now, James says, yeah, we all stumble. And not occasionally, but you know, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man able to rein in the whole body as well. We all struggle with many fleshly desires. The desire to control. The desire to uh, win. The desire to have. Insert fleshly desire there. It may not be gross like some of these as we read. You say, I would never do that. But surely there's desires that you would do. We all struggle with fleshly desires. They don't stop when you become a believer. Have you noticed that? But we have a choice. We have a will. At some point in our Christian life, there's a decision to be made. And after we've struggled with whatever temptation of the flesh we've struggled with long enough, we surrender that to Him. We surrender our will. We surrender that passion, that desire, to the will of God. And when you surrender your will to God, you surrender your mind, you surrender your body to God as a living sacrifice. Isn't that what Romans 12 tells us? And you notice here that Peter contrasts the will of God with the will of the Gentiles. It's interesting. Stay with me on this because I think it's important because he uses two different words for the word will here. He uses one word, which is thelema, for will, which means that which is desired or wished for. But then he uses the word will as bulima, a desire, a want, implying planning and invocation of the will to plan or to purpose. Do you see the difference? One is just a desire or a wish. The other is a desire that makes a plan. And goes after it. So when Peter speaks of God's will, he uses the word philema, the first word. Because God has a lot of wonderful desires for us and for our life, but he does not force it on anyone, as some theologies teach us. But when Peter speaks of the will of the Gentiles, he uses the other word, bulima. Meaning that these unbelievers, they had a sinful desire, they had a, a fleshly passion, but then in their own will, they made a decision, they made a plan to continue down that path and fulfill that lust of the flesh, that desire. Do you see the difference? And I think the reality is for us is that God does not override our will. Did you catch that? God is not going to just magically override your will. He's not forcing you to follow his plan. He's not forcing us to do all the things that he wants us to do. 
He is not a God like that. He takes a different approach. He's a patient God. He doesn't coerce. He doesn't manipulate. He doesn't force His will on us. He simply appeals to us. And He draws us in to understand His great love, His goodness, His perfection. And He invites us to be part of what His plan is for our life. And so I guess the question this morning is, is, have you lived out your will for your life long enough? Are you tired of it yet? Has chasing the fleshly passions and desires of your heart provided what you're really looking for? Peter says, you spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans choose to do. Enough already. You've been there. You've done that. You know that it doesn't satisfy. Haven't you figured out by now that that life, those pursuits, they just don't deliver? Are you ready to start living out God's good and perfect will for your life? Because it's far greater. And if you are, if you're ready, you can decide today, I want to be a fervent follower of Jesus. I want to experience God's will for my life because I'm tired of what I, the path that I've chosen. I want God's will more than I want my own will. Have you wised up to the truth that God's will for your life is far better than anything that you and I can devise for our life? Father truly does know best. This, this was a, a particular moment in my life when this understanding, this insight came to me. And I know God did this for me because it was um, just after I attempted to take my own life around the age of 20. I remember after being released from the hospital having this realization, as I look back at my life, and I was a prodigal for, I don't know, seven or eight years where I just lived in the world for the flesh, and just hardship after hardship after, you know, here I find myself trying to take my own life. I'm so miserable. As a believer, I was a believer, and I knew it, and I knew how I was living wasn't the way God wanted me to live, but I didn't care. I fulfilled my own passions and desires until it just wasn't fun anymore. And leaving the hospital after a few days there, I realized, and I remember saying this to myself, surely God's plan for my life is better than mine because <laughs> mine stinks. This is, what, this is where my plans got me. This is where doing it my way got me. And I said, God, I just, want your, I just want your will. I just surrendered. And let's be honest, following Jesus with our life is not a one-time decision. In fact, it's a lifelong process that's full of setbacks and rabbit trails, isn't it? 
But I can say with absolute certainty this morning, the more that we surrender our will with our passions and desires to God, life just gets better. Absolute certainty, I can say that. The longer you live in light of the will of God for your life, the more you're going to long for it. And the desires of the old life just lose their appeal. If you haven't experienced that, maybe you haven't lived in light of the will of God long enough. For a former prodigal who lived many years for my own passions and desires, I, I think it's taken me a little bit longer to experience this in my life. But today I can affirm it's true. I want God's will for my life much more than I want what my flesh wants. Oh, it's still a struggle. There's still times when my, my flesh prevails. But I know that God's will is much more satisfying. Far more fulfilling than anything I would have ever imagined. I just want more. Andre Nguyen was a, a Dutch-born Catholic priest who came to know Christ. He authored 40 books on the spiritual life. He wrote a book called The Inner Voice of Love, and I think it describes this truth wonderfully, and I want to close with this. He says this, you have an idea what the new country looks like. Still, you're very much at home, although not truly at peace in the old country. You know the ways of the old country, its joys and pains, its happy and sad moments. You've spent most of your days there. Even though you know that you have not found there what your heart most desires, you remain quite attached to it. It has become part of your very bones. Now you have come to realize that you must leave it and enter the new country where your beloved dwells. You know that what helped and guided you in the old country no longer works. But what else do you have to go by? You're being asked to trust that you will find what you need in the new country. Well, that requires the death of what has become precious to you. Influence, success, yes, even affection and praise. Trust is so hard since you have nothing to fall back on. Still, trust is what is essential. The new country is where you're called to go, and the only way to go there is naked and vulnerable. It seems you keep crossing and recrossing the border. For a while, you experience a real joy in the new country, but then you feel afraid and start longing again for all that you left behind, so you go back to the old country. To your dismay, you discover that the old country has lost its charm. Risk a few more steps into the new country, trusting that each time you enter it, you will feel more comfortable and be able to stay longer. Do you long to be a fervent follower of Jesus? Because the things that God has in store for us, we could never imagine. But you have to trust. And you have to step out. 
and you have to follow. Father, thank you for this time we've had and just these few verses here in 1 Peter. There's so much here, Lord, and we'll continue this next week and find out how, what that looks like. My prayers for every heart here this morning, especially mine. We cannot get rid of the flesh. It will never be gone until you return and give us a new body. So while we're in these bodies, Lord, there's a battle. The battle rages for our desires, what we think is best, the way that we want to go, and so often, God, we default to the flesh. We just follow our instincts. We follow our passions. We just follow our desires. And we end up in the same place every time. Unfulfilled, unsatisfied, no joy, nothing that's lasting. No lives are changed. No churches are changed. No communities are changed. Because I think we're not spending enough time in the new country. And so, God, please help me. I've struggled so many years with this. And you have taught me so much. Thank you for ruining my life at one time and continuing to ruin my life as I pursue my own flesh, my own desires, because you have something far better. Please continue to lead me, Lord. Help me to follow. Work out your plan for me, Lord, as I surrender to that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.